Welcome to The Best of Us, an education podcast that highlights the concepts, practices, and stories of K-12 professional learning leaders working to enhance the educator experience and bring an excellent education to all students. To get the best of our students, we need the best of our educators. And in each episode, we'll bring you the professional learning leaders who are doing just that to enable your work. The Best of Us is brought to you by KickUp your partner for ensuring that the investments you make to increase educator capacity find their way into the classroom. Hi, I'm Jeremy Rogoth, co-founder and CEO of KickUp and host of the Best of Us podcast. In this episode, I sat down with Carmita Saman, founder and president of the Surge Institute, whose mission is to educate and develop leaders of color who create transformative change for young people, their families, and their broader communities. Carmita walks us through the practical ways in which systems can invest in black, brown, and Asian talent across the educational ecosystem. Carmita draws a clear line between leadership investments and exponential growth in access and opportunities for young people. We also talk about the key differences between professional development and leadership acceleration. She highlights the work of change makers that you may not know, and gives practical advice on creating conditions for underrepresented leaders to thrive. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Carmita Saman, welcome to The Best of Us. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to be here. I am super excited to have you, Carmita. We at KickUp focus on improving the educator experience by improving the quality of support educators receive. And your focus, your life's work, your organization is really focused on the key enabling conditions of the educator experience, which is who are the people leading them, um, as well as other sectors, which we can talk about. So I'm really excited to focus on on your work and hear more about it. I thought a good place to start would just be around Surge itself, kind of framing the problem, framing your vision, the why of Surge. Um, and then we can talk a little bit more about you know, go back to your story about what informs that, but I, I'd love to start with just what is the the problem that yeah. you are on a mission to solve? Yeah, so we um, are really, so Surge Institute founded in, in 2014, we began our work in 2015, and now are doing work in um, seven cities across the country uh, through five different programs. And we unapologetically invest in Black, Brown, Asian um, talent across the education ecosystem because we really believe that acceleration, amplification, uh, elevation of those leaders is a critical lever to systems level change to improve access and outcomes um, for young people. So that's grounded in data. Um, that many folks have seen where we know over half of American students are folks are, are children of color, um, but less than 25% of teachers are um, administ- teachers and administrators. When you start looking at CEO roles, that number dwindles down to about six to 7%. That latest data that was from 2018 uh, board members is about 11%. And and we really think that beyond just those numbers, the implication of those numbers is felt across systems. So having people, we, you know, I believe that first and foremost, anyone 
um, as an education education leader or educator, first and foremost, has to believe in the brilliance and genius of all young people, no matter where they are and the promise of that. But it should it should give us all pause if we have a gross disparity between the students and communities that we serve and those who are actually leading their educational journeys. Because shared experience with those communities, with those students, with those families um, actually matters. It leads to a greater understanding of the assets of those communities and those folks, um, which leads to an, an, an asset-based mentality in, in your work with them. Um, it also leads into really strong connection culturally, identity that is affirming, and lots of data supports that that's great, not just for Black and Brown students, but for all students. So that's why we exist. We, we we are really, uh, we want to tackle, and there are lots of great organizations that are tackling those issues in, in different ways. Our approach is an investment in leadership. We believe that the lever for change that is the one that we can uniquely support is investing in those leaders that are then leading schools, uh, systems, institutions that are driving um, exponential change in access and opportunities for young people. I love that. And the focus on who is leading the schools, who is leading the systems, um, who is leading the classrooms that ultimately teach our students, um, particularly students from underrepresented backgrounds, to make sure that they are reflective of the communities that they serve. That is an, an age-old problem in education. And the, the fact that you're focusing on the leadership is seems like such a such a high impact lever for for actually having an impact there. I'd love to maybe go back a little bit to your story. How did you arrive at starting Surge? Why was this the the problem that you decided to tackle, especially such an entrenched problem in education yeah. and in our society more broadly? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting where to start is kind of the the thing. I first, I first start with um, I'm a product of Birmingham, Alabama. And I'll get to why that matters in just a moment. Um, but, you know, and, and education was frankly my pathway out of poverty. So I was, you know, the, um, I, I've always excelled in school, um, but was that student that grew up in housing projects, like, you know, had a period of being homeless, all these things. Um, but I had access to an amazing public education. Um, and growing up in Birmingham, for folks who don't know, is it's an extreme extremely, like it's an extremely black city, right? It is. Um, and what that means is, and, and I now understand the uniqueness of my story, particularly my educational journey, is that I was constantly surrounded by uh, what I would call black excellence, right? So I had principals who were black, I had teachers who were black. My mayor was black. My, um, you know, when I think about all my AP courses, it sounds, uh, it, my normal was to have a black male AP chemistry teacher, AP physics instructor, um, you know, my, so that was my normal. Um, so fast forward, I, uh, I started my career as a chemical engineer. I transitioned into education very early on effectively because 
um, I thought that too many people assumed that my story was an anomaly. Um, and I grew up, you know, surrounded by brilliant folks um, who whose journey led them in all kinds of different directions. But I recognized that I wanted to use my um, skills and whatever experience I had to to impact and support um, that the system of education to ensure that my story was not an anomaly. And what I recognized, Jeremy, when I got into, started working in education, worked in a district and in, in, at Chicago Public Schools for a number of years before going to DC and working at the non, you know, education nonprofits. And I noticed this great disparity between the students and families that we were serving and the people who were in the rooms wielding the most power and influence around strategy, policy, and finances. And I will never forget this sort of aha moment that I had at the time I was chief of staff of high schools in Chicago public schools. We were having a conversation about um, our students who were de dealing with housing instability and transient populations and things like that. And because of some of the conversation, which was well-meaning people um, who really, uh, but it was grounded in these assumptions about those, the, the families and parents of those students and their greatest hopes and dreams and desires for them. Um, and I had this moment where I'm like, I am the only person at this table who has ever been homeless. Like I, in that moment, realized like, no one else at this table has ever lived out of a brown, you know, plastic bag. I have. Um, and that matters because that experience and and to that point, I think I had not been as as uh, I hadn't been as willing to disclose aspects of my personal journey because along the way, many of us learn that, are told implicitly or explicitly not to. Um, but I learned in that moment, if I don't speak up, not as an educator or as someone who really cares, but as one of these students, if I don't actually speak up in this moment, we will likely do some things that are rooted in, as, as well-meaning as they may be, rooted in a false set of assumptions about the greatest aspirations and capabilities of these students and their families. So I share that story to say that that was my experience. Um, and while I'm a reluctant entrepreneur, I'm a problem solver at my core. Maybe that's because the engineer in me will never die. Mm -hmm. And I said, I started noticing that problem time and time again in different rooms, in different cities, at different levels of organizations. And I thought, I want to create a space that is unapologetic about the need to invest in elevate and amplify leaders with shared experience with our students and families, because it will change the way we do our work. Um, and that's how Surge was born. It's such a, such a powerful story. And I feel like there's so many, as, as one of the people who's maybe been at a seat where I've had influence on policy or on a student's experience and me not having that perspective I can totally see the the unintended consequences of a well-intentioned person really not being able to um, truly understand the experience of students who've who've been homeless, whose whose families have been homeless, and to make assumptions about 
like you said, the, the aspirations of those families. So it's such yeah. a powerful anecdote that brings that brings the why to light. Yeah. And I, I think it's important because particularly in this, you know, post 2020 era where everyone is talking about equity and educational equity and making lots of investments in inclusion and all those things. I, I, I'm so happy that you asked me that why question, because this isn't just about representation. It isn't just about having people in seats whose faces make us feel good because it's like, oh, we've got, you know, it's like, we actually have to understand why it matters, you know? And, um, and I do believe I actually uh, often have to correct people because they talk about the work that we do as human capital work, but as if it is separate and apart from systems change work. And I think, you know, you'll agree just based on the work that you all do, like this is, this is our lever for systems change work. It's, we really believe that the who matters and we want to ensure that we're investing in those folks um, such that when they are in positions where they're leading organizations, leading initiatives, that they've done the work, not just of you know skill building and all of that. And I know we'll probably get to my philosophy around development versus acceleration later, but it's not just that. It's also an understanding of the power of their origins and their stories and connecting that. So to bring this full circle, it's why I start with Birmingham. So that, that educational experience of growing up in Birmingham and who I saw as leaders and as, you know, and, and the geniuses of my community, it instilled something in me that no one can take away, like about my belief in self, but my belief in people who have the same um, experiences as I do. And I take that belief. I often say that Surge started, um, was founded and grounded in a belief, not an idea. And that, that belief was in the innate brilliance and genius of underrepresented people. Um, and, and because of that belief, I am committed to investing in the support, elevation, and amplification of those folks so that we stop, you know, I started with the numbers around the discrepancies between who we serve and who's sitting in seats of leadership. And that's something that we've got to stop um, and reverse. And I believe that Surge has sort of tapped into at least one way to dramatically improve those figures. As a fellow entrepreneur, I I would love to spend hours hearing about, you know, your story from how you started Surge to where oh, it is goodness. now, but I know we only have so much time. And so I want to, I want to fast forward a little bit to Surge today and the ways in which you achieve that vision and that mission of um, investing in underrepresented leaders. What are the different ways by which Sur Surge ultimately achieves that goal? Yeah. So our first way is, um, which is is our sort of bread and butter hallmark, is our investment in leaders through cohort-based programming. Um, the how of that is we talk about our work as head, heart, and spirit. 
Um, so it is, yes, about executive skills. It's about soft skills and all of that. But there's a who we are and reclaiming the power of our narratives, our stories. Um, as I said earlier, so many, um, particularly women and folks of color, have been taught that they have to leave aspects of who they are behind in order to be seen as um, professional, promotable, you know, what fill in the, the blank. And we're trying to reverse that narrative and say, actually, those things make you uniquely and supremely qualified to work alongside on behalf of and for students, families, and communities of color. So that cohort-based programming, we started um, that work in 2015 in Chicago with our first year-long cohort. And as I mentioned earlier, have now expanded that uh, we're we were in Oakland, we're in Kansas City, Indianapolis, uh, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C. Um, so that's one aspect of the work that we do, which is very high-touch, cohort-based uh, programming. We also do an extension of that work is a lot of work that we do for our alums. We are now, uh, again, we st started in 2015 with a cohort of 12. We're now in 2023 with uh, boasting 303 alums across the country. So uh, the second aspect of how we do this work is elevating and amplifying the work of those alums and fellows in a multitude of ways. Um, it's We invest in that work. We have a Surge Angels program where we, um, for entrepreneurs, budding entrepreneurs in our community, uh, we provide a cohort-based experience for them to get access to executive coaching, um, content that's specific to entrepreneurial ventures, uh, you you will appreciate, you know, a lot of folks have amazing ideas, but taking that from ideation to implementation requires a lot. You know, you've got to know how to write a business plan, how to do a financial model, how to, you know, marketing. So those are things that we're all bringing to them and then ultimately making financial investments of capital in their work. So that's an example of, of a specific program that we've built for our alumni community. Uh, lighter touch things for our alumni community are ongoing um, uh, continuous improvement sort of uh, or continuous education opportunities and everything from strategic planning webinars to, you know, all those types of things that are responsive to what our community tells us they need in order to continue to grow in their leadership journeys. We have launched our Black Principles Network. We're now the home, I should say that, sorry, differently. We are now the home of the Black Principles Network, which is a network of hundreds of principles. Um, it was actually launched and seeded at the Schusterman Foundation. Um, and then they, I think, as a, a really thoughtful um, foundation said, we started this because during the pandemic, we saw that uh, principals were being really burned out and, and um, starting to leave the profession in droves and were hungry for a place that provided them additional support um, opportunities to learn from their peers across the country, but also just spaces to rejuvenate and focus on their wellness and the reality of leadership uh, at that time. And we were then really fortunate to um, be um, 
selected as the home of that community. And we're launching a, a program um, specifically for Black principals uh, later this month, later in April of 2023. I forget, I have to say that because who knows when folks will be listening to this, mm -hmm. um, which is the Leadership Collaborative, uh, where we've got 16 uh, principals from across the country that will be coming together over a year in hybrid, uh, in-person and virtual learning spaces to build community, learn from each other, support each other's wellness, growth, all in service of, we talk about education as the great liberator. Um, and, and that has to start with the adults because you can't do for others what you haven't done for yourself. Um, so those are examples of things that we're doing. We also have a lot of other sort of light touch things where we are, we're um, providing opportunities for our fellows and alums to go to conferences. So they are uh, out there in the field learning, you know, what is what is hot and new in education, but also influencing that, right? So next week is uh, one of the large largest education innovation conferences, ASU GSV. We are taking over a hundred fellows and alums from the surge community to be in that space. Um, one, because we think that there's an opportunity for them to learn. They're often these very siloed, and I'm just going to say, frankly, white spaces around education innovation that is usually driven by ed tech. Um, that are often so disconnected from the educators that are on the ground doing the work. So we want our people to be there and learn and hear, but we also have, um, we want them to be in spaces leading conversations. So we have people who are actually leading on panels and talking. So, so that's a lot, but it, it tells you how we've expanded. We've, we say to our fellows from the beginning, our commitment to you is not for a one-time cohort. This is a lifelong community. Um, our surge is not about a program, we're a movement. And that means that we continue to expand our offerings as the needs of our community continue to grow. As somebody who has attended uh, ASU GSV a number of times, I can validate what you've shared. <laughs> and. and and also just say how excited I am to hear that you're going to have such a presence there because I agree it's a place that, um, for better or worse, carries an enormous amount of of influence and power. And so to be able to have so many of your fellows there speaking, and I, and I know that you're also going to be on a panel there that I'd love to um, yeah. talk a little bit about. I just think that's such a, a great place to um, to feature your work. So that, that's really exciting to hear. Yeah. Well, um, can I also just offer this? Is, I think this is a lesson for all leaders. Um you know, we often talk about wanting to bring people along with us and pull people along and push them forward as we go. But there are really practical ways that you can do that. You know, the next time someone asks you to come speak at a conference, ask them how many people they will allow you to bring and ask them to comp their registration. You know, like that someone asks you to be on a panel, say, hey, maybe I'm not the right person for that, but here are three or four other names that you probably don't know. Um, so I, I just think that we have an opportunity to model what it looks like to invest in and amplify others in this journey. Because that's that's the, you know, there's there's a there's been enough power hoarding. <laughs> in in our work. And now is the time for us to really live what we talk um, and create spaces for other folks to shine. Yeah. 
So going back to the 300 alumni that you mentioned, I just want to get a little bit of a flavor for the different types of roles of the people that are yeah. um, graduating for, or I don't want to say graduating because it is, a uh, like you said, a, a long-term commitment. And you mentioned uh, the Black Principles Network. Within K-12 systems, what are some examples of other roles that folks are either moving into um, or aspire to become as part of the Surge Fellowship? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's so powerful. So um, if you look at our alumni base, and this this data is going to be a little dated because it's based on our uh, last, we do an annual alumni survey, um, and this is going to be a couple years old. So I won't quote the exact numbers because they won't be right, and the engineer in me doesn't like saying data that's incorrect. But what <laughs> I will say is that about... Um, somewhere around 20% of our alums are in C-level roles. So, you know, CEO or C-suite executive uh, director roles or the most senior roles. So like principals, you know, they're in the most senior roles in their organizations. Um, you add to that, you get up to about 30% when you add folks who have started their own organizations. So I I mentioned the very first uh, cohort that those 12, I call them my co-founders, those pioneers um, in Chicago in 2015, um, that cohort now, uh, the, the, the alums or graduates of that cohort are now the, and I'm just rattling off a few of them. Uh, one is the chief equity officer for the city of Chicago. Um, and that is a, a, a brand new position, which she now has written into law that there will forevermore be a chief equity officer in the city of Chicago to ensure that this focus on equity is deeply embedded in all of the systems, not just education, but housing, transportation, all of that. Um, the CEO of One Goal is a Surge alum, um, the founder and CEO of Innovair, um, AJ DeLeon is uh, at the time of doing his Surge cohort was leading data for an area at Chicago Public Schools and now has founded a company that's valued at over $20 million that is supporting school systems and their data efforts and needs um, across the country and internationally because they're doing work in Mexico City and others. So I could, I could tell you so many different examples, um, but I hope what it shows is that um, you know, we don't take any credit for these amazing people, but, uh, but I think if you talk to many of them, uh, what they say to us consistently is that Surge was catalytic in their trajectory um, in, because it was not just about investing in them to be, you know, to promote to certain levels, but it was about actually seeing them um, and understanding and having them understand the strengths, skills, beauty, brilliance that already existed within them. Um, and then leveraging that to try to solve the problems, <clears throat> sorry, that were nearest and dearest to them. So, um, so we're really proud of the fact that sometimes that has meant folks 
you know, going into their organizations and being intrapreneurs and really impacting change within whether it be systems of schools, large education nonprofits, and kind of rising through the ranks there. Um, sometimes that's meant folks founding their own organizations because they realize that the problems that they want to solve are really intractable and require completely different innovation. So people have started, you know, nonprofits. I mentioned uh, Innovare, which is a for-profit, but works with a lot of nonprofit organizations and school systems. And some of them have gone in directions that have said, we actually want to work in the education system more broadly. So policy um, positions, education, philanthropy, um, because that where we started this conversation, Jeremy, in terms of the discrepancies in the numbers, those don't just exist within schools. It exists within education, nonprofits, philanthropy, all, all of those things. So we believe that entire ecosystem has to see um, some real change in terms of the positionality, the power and influence of folks who are connected to and have shared experiences with those they serve. And we're proud to say when we look at where our people are and their trajectories, um, that's exactly what's happening. It's incredibly impressive and inspiring. And one of the things that we talked about um, in preparation for this this conversation was some of your thoughts around a topic that's near and dear to our heart and to the, I think to a lot of the listeners, um, which is around kind of professional development versus I think what you frame it as leadership acceleration. Yes, um, yeah. And I know that, you know, you're doing work with leaders to become better leaders. And then many of them are going on to provide professional learning and leadership support to educators and to um, other staff in school systems. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about you know, your framing around professional development versus kind of this concept of leadership acceleration. Yeah, yeah. You know, I could wax poetic on this all day. Um, so part of my, you know, I, I get a little bit of a, a tick when I hear professional development because um, it is often rooted in a belief that people don't don't start as leaders, right? Is particularly when you hear leadership development. So I say, and I've said it ad nauseum, people hear it from me almost every time I speak anywhere. At Surge, we don't groom leaders. Like we actually identify people who are already doing amazing work and we provide opportunities for them to continue to expand, you know, like um, get new skills, opportunities, gain greater networks that are going to help their impact and their trajectory. And then our, I believe it's to remove barriers um, that exist, whether those barriers exist internally within them or more broadly, um, and then accelerate their trajectory and their impact. So I think part of my, part of the difference in, in the way that I think about it is a mentality and an understanding of uh, recognizing what people are already, um, what people already have within them and seeing your job as, as uh, kind of unearthing what already exists and is often ignored, um, sometimes by people themselves. And 
being a catalyst to sort of push that forward by recognizing what's standing between, and I'll take this to an individual level, like what is standing between that person and their greatest and highest being an opportunity for impact. And if it's that, hey, they they need to learn more about X, Y, or Z, that to me is the easy part. Um, if it's, hey, they need greater access to networks that are going to put them in places where they can you know, take this, this idea, this seed of innovation and cultivate it, then that's something that we do if it's... So, so ultimately... I think, and this gets back to what I said earlier about some of these like mindsets of of seeing things through an asset versus deficit-based lens, a lot of professional development assumes that people start from a place of deficit and acceleration assumes that people are starting from a place of wholeness. And our job is to just um, be an additional driver accelerator for that and to remove barriers for them we could argue that you know in some spaces but (laughs) i think for the most part that's a pretty um pretty universal principle to to uphold right is that adults just like students have aspirations goals and our job is to help them um realize those goals as opposed to assume that they don't you know that they don't want to like you said earlier, it's not about making people come along so much as it is enlisting them in their own kind of growth trajectory. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about an alum in our network right now that is an executive director that I will never forget during their um, fellowship experience. Uh, we do a section on finance and operations, and we're not trying to make anybody into a CFO, but there are just some basics that you need to understand about building budgets, you know, reading balance sheets, net income statements, particularly if you are, if you aim to be at a senior executive level in an organization, whether it be a school, nonprofit, um, um, et cetera. And I'll never forget this part. She kept talking about how she's bad at math. Oh, I'm I'm bad at math. And I heard that is like, oh, that's a narrative that she picked up somewhere along the way that she can't shake, right? Like she, and because she can't shake it, she keeps telling herself that there are certain roles that are not for her because she's bad at math. Well, you know, I've listened to a couple of, um, sorry, a couple of episodes of The Best of Us. And I what I think it was Lacey Robinson of Unbound mm-hmm. Ed that talked yep. about um see, I listen, I did I, thank <laughs> you. It's a good, it's a good podcast. Um and and you know, talked about how, you know, we have these narratives and I, I laughed during her thing because she said at one point I thought I wanted to be a doctor, but then I was bad at math, so I didn't pursue that. And now I know I didn't need to be good at math. And it's it's one of those things where when I heard this now alum saying this, and I thought, you know, actually being able to read a budget isn't about being good at math. Like being able to read a balance sheet, it's about knowing the story that those numbers are going to tell you. And fast forward, and this person is now running a really amazing organization and doing just phenomenal things 
um, and, and supporting the leadership of systems across the country. And that was something that was not about, it wasn't about pouring into her so she got better at math. It was about recognizing that the barrier was one, her belief about her own strengths and skills and a lack of understanding of what skills were really required to lead certain organizations at a level that unfortunately there's been, you know, these, we have made certain things, we have created barriers where people feel um, that they are not exposed to what do I really need to know if I want to be a fill in the blank superintendent, you know, executive director, chief of staff. Um, and we create those barriers because we want to hold on to our power and have people believe that they, you know, that they um, cannot aspire to certain things. And that is baffling to me in a space where we say that we believe in the greatest, uh, we have great belief in the highest aspirations of students and that they should not be limited or bound by zip codes or socioeconomic status or race or any of those things. Yet that doesn't extend, that generosity and that belief often doesn't extend to the adults that are leading them. Um, and if I can do anything with my little bits of influence and, and um, I hope to reverse that trend for sure. Yeah. Well, I love that you're uh, a student of our podcast and you've listened to, uh, <laughs> to others and, and, and you're connecting a thread that I think is, is really important. And one that I wanted to focus in on, which was, you know, our audience is made up of a lot of professional learning leaders, people who have the opportunity or the influence to um, impact how other adults um, see themselves and, and learn and grow themselves. And I, um, I'd i love to hear from you when you think about leadership acceleration versus professional development, where, where are you seeing that done really well? Um, what are the conditions needed to be in place in you know schools and districts for that type of mindset to take hold, to really think of adults as assets, not just, you know, having to go along with some type of district-wide initiative, for example, where's that happening really effectively? Yeah. I mean, I can tell you a number of different, uh, I'll, I'll, what immediately came to mind with the question, and you can tell me if I don't, uh, if, if I don't hit what you want me to hit, but what immediately came to mind to me are a number of organizations, um, that I think have phenomenal leaders who are thinking about leadership. Um, a lot of them are rooted in equity um, and leadership preparation and acceleration in very new and exciting ways. Um, so one is the 228 Accelerator. I don't know if you know Carolyn Hill. Caroline um, started in, in DC, um, but does trainings, um, you know, builds community for educators, primarily in K-12, but um, other sort of school leaders and, and across the country. And I heard what she has built is this equity by design framework that helps people to understand um, and connect their greatest and highest aspirations, but to ensure that, um, equity and a sense of understanding of what that means for students and adults 
is interwoven in everything that you do. Um, so she's someone that I think is doing really unique work, has built a whole framework around it, and is just a dope individual. Um, another person that comes to mind, and this this will get more closely connected to um, school systems. So Urban Ed Academy out in the Bay, it's run by Randy Saraguchi, who's a Surge alum, I'm gonna plug that. Um, but Urban Ed Academy, it actually started as, uh, as a sort of after-school program. And this is a great example of seeing a problem and then creating a pathway to a solution. So they now are, are really focused on um, supporting and building, recruiting, training Black men um, to go into uh, the teaching and stay into the teaching profession um, in San Diego. And the reason that it is connected to the question that you asked me, in addition to just being a great program, and I applaud San Francisco and Oakland um, to you know building the connection um, there, but they've also started to recognize that the barriers to um, retaining and then accelerating black male educators in the Bay is not just about training. It's also about um, housing and how you actually address the fact that the Bay is not very affordable for lots of folks, particularly those who don't come from places of, you know, family wealth and, and those sorts of things. So, what Randy has done, in addition to great partnerships with SFUSD and OUSD, it's also building these housing connections that are supporting uh, Black and Brown homeowners who then can actually start to continue to build their family, you know, do some wealth generation in their families while also providing house, housing opportunities for early educators. So I just think it's a really innovative and thoughtful design to say there are lots of people who are doing great training and investment in, um, in educators, particularly educators of color, but to connect the fact that there are other barriers outside of our systems. And if we don't address those barriers, then we'll continue to see this sort of uh, siphoning off of, of amazing talent. Um, and then a final one that I'll, I'll throw out there, um, Sharif El-Meki at the Center for Black <clears throat> Education Development. I love that his model um, of, of leadership acceleration actually starts with students. And it really is about creating a pipeline of educators by starting to invest in students and get them interested in education while they are in school and then creating a pipeline to college, then, you know, early stage teaching and, and beyond, which I think is a, a brilliant idea. Like we talk about pipelines all the time, but often we don't start those pipelines at the stage where um, many of our young people are most impressionable. So those are a few examples of, I think, great leadership acceleration work that's happening out there from three different sort of vantage points um, and that, that I think people should know about support, invest in, and, you know, learn from, honestly. Yeah. And I love that all of the ones that you cited, even though they're not, you know, school or district leaders, there are people that are focused on creating the conditions for 
underrepresented leaders to to thrive. Um, and that's ultimately, you know, what's going to make the biggest long-term impact. Um, it's the, yeah. the enabling that that's so important. Absolutely. And to connect this to, you know, one of your other podcasts, like Sharif Elmeki was a principal for, I, I think, I'm going to misquote, maybe 16 years or so. Um, so this was not born out of someone who just saw a problem that he he witnessed this as an educator and as a you know um and then said oh okay this isn't enough for me to just from the space that i'm in try to pull pe- more people into this profession i actually need to create a broader systems based um response to this that started in philly but has now uh, again also expanded across the country same thing with caroline um her work started at you know she was at el haynes charter in dc um so i i love I love the idea. Well, I love and think it's important to acknowledge that people leading these efforts are not doing so because it's an intellectual exercise for them. It it is generally in response to having lived that issue, seen the negative consequences and have a commitment to investing in changing those systems. Yeah. I'm wondering as we wrap up, you know, we think about our our audience again as as district leaders could be curriculum and instruction, professional learning, HR. If you had one parting message for them, something that they can do in in their roles in their positions that would help further the mission that Surge has, because you mentioned the cities that you work in, it's going to be you know it's not like every school or district is going to be a Surge, a place where a Surge um, fellow necessarily works, but there are certain principles and values that you think are um, essential for this to take hold across the K-12 system, any parting words of, um, encouragement or advice? Yeah, I, I, um, I was sitting here trying to think of something really profound, but I'm just (laughs) going to say what's on my heart and what's on my heart is that, um, we have to set, we have to start from a place of thinking about all that we say we believe about young people to be true for adults. And if we start at that place, if we start at an unwavering belief in the need, the access and opportunity for young people to realize their wildest dreams and us being the vehicles to support them getting there, adults can't do that if we aren't doing the same for them. I often say, Jeremy, like, we can't lead anyone to their breakthrough from our places of brokenness. So when I see folks who have the ability to actually um, impact what it looks like to pour into educators, leaders, brought, you know, um, leverage, like take that same mindset that you have around the young people and don't see, if you want to call it professional development, learning, leadership acceleration, don't see this as the cherry on top. See this as the base, right? <laughs> like see this as the base of the Sunday. Um, because if they if they are not well, and well doesn't just mean well-educated and all of that, like if they are not poured into and sustained, then none of, I don't care what new innovation, what new silver bullet, none of it will stick 
because they have to be well and sustained and continuously, I think, nurtured um, in order for them to be able to do that over the long haul for students. So that's what I would share. I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, <laughs> Carmita Simon, thank you so much for being on The Best of Us. Thank you, Jeremy. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Best of Us. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the KickUp PLC at kickup.co slash PLC, where you'll find all of the episodes of our podcast and other resources to help educators maximize the impact of their professional learning program.